We're gonna get some lights. All right, what's up everybody? It's good to see you tonight. How are you? Doing pretty good? Okay, good. It's good to see all your smiling faces out here. It's Friday night. Where would you rather be? New Life Friday night. This is your first time here. My name is Andrew. Uh, I was on staff here with New Life Friday night for a couple years and then we planted New Life East uh, right before COVID. And do we have some Easter's in the house here? Okay, well, all right, it's good. I see you all out there. Okay, all right, all right, all right. I mean, I'm here too. But we love coming to Friday night. Friday night for us is, uh, uh, man, I have cried a lot of tears in that carpet over there laying on my face. I have met God in such profound ways in this community. And uh, it's just special for us to come here, always special to preach here. I always feel like I remember what I love so much about preaching when I come to preach for Friday night because you guys are such a hungry a congregation. So it's good to be here. Pastor Daniel's on a little vacation, so pray for him while him and Lisa are away. They'd experience some uh, refreshing while they're out of pocket. And I'm going to be in the book of Ruth chapter 3. So if you have Bibles, I will invite you to turn to Ruth chapter 3. The title of our series here is The Outsider. And Ruth is really the story of how during a tumultuous time in Israel's life, uh, God used a very specific outsider, raised up somebody uh, to come into the family of God and bring refreshing to the family of God. Ruth, the name Ruth, actually means refreshing. And so what we see in this outsider is that she comes in and there is this renewal during a desolate and confusing time. There is renewal that takes place in the people of God uh, through the person of Ruth. In week one, just to recap the story, get on the same page here in case you've missed any of it. In week one, we looked at what happens in chapter one of the book of Ruth. And so in chapter one, as you know, uh, there was a famine in the land of Israel. And it drove a man named Elimelech with his wife uh, Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, out of Bethlehem into the land of Moab, which is this very scary area. The Moabites and the Israelites were always kind of at each other's uh, throats. And while they were there, Elimelech dies, the two sons die. They had actually married a couple girls. And so Naomi is left with these two girls, uh, Orpah and Ruth. And so all of a sudden, uh, Naomi overhears that the Lord had come to the aid of his people in Bethlehem. And so she starts making her way back home and the girls are tagging along with her. You remember the story? And Naomi turns around and she goes, hey girls, this is really nice and I'm very honored that you want to stay with me, but like, you don't need to do this. Like, we don't have to keep up this thing, so go back home. Then Orpah, of course, does go back home and Ruth doesn't. Ruth stays and says, where you go, do you remember it? I will go and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God. My God, and where you die... I will die and there I will be buried. And so Ruth tethers herself to Naomi and all of a sudden we start seeing that the destiny of these two women is all tied up. And then in chapter two, they are back in Bethlehem and uh, they don't really have much social standing. Uh, we learn as we, if you read some of the commentaries, uh, one of the things that you learn is that Elimelech and his family really were people of high standing when they had left Bethlehem. They were people of high standing, a little bit like the Rockefellers almost. And they leave and they lose everything. And when they come home, and Naomi is destitute. You'll remember that all the women celebrated. Naomi is home. And you remember she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, bitter, because the Lord has made my life bitter. So she's lost so much social capital. And all of a sudden, uh, they begin to find favor in the field of a man by the name of Boaz, who, as it turns out, is a relative of theirs. And Boaz is very, very kind to Ruth and kind to Naomi. And we start seeing that this crisis that the family had been in all of a sudden, in this very beautiful way, the Lord is orchestrating these circumstances that are gonna bring refreshing and renewal, not just to the family of Elimelech, but to all of Israel. So all along, though, as we've been reading uh, the book of Ruth and wrestling with it, 
there's a question that's kind of lingering in the background. And Dr. Chris Green, if you were here last week, alluded to it just a bit. One of the things that's very interesting about the book of Ruth is that whereas in so many other places in the Bible, uh, you see sort of overt actions of God. God moves by signs and wonders and miracles and dramatic things happening. There's nothing really dramatic that happens in the book of Ruth, okay? And still, there is the hidden character of Yahweh kind of behind the scenes. And you can tell, even though he's not the front actor, he's not the lead actor in the story, you can tell that Yahweh has something very much to do with all of the things that are going on as this story is unfolding. So the question that I want us to wrestle with tonight as we look at Ruth chapter three is this question. How does God accomplish his purposes in the world? How does God accomplish his purposes in the world? I want you to lodge that question in your mind and in your hearts and then let's pray here and then we'll open the text together. Why don't you just take a deep breath or two? Oh, I can hear those deep breaths. That's good. And we breathe in the presence of God. Yeah, that's it. Let it go. And we breathe out anxiety. And we breathe out worry. We breathe out fear. We breathe it out. The scripture says that perfect love casts out fear. And so in this house, we claim the perfect love of God tonight. (laughs) Which means that the demon of fear is cast out. And so cast it away from every mind, cast it away from every heart. Uh, Everything in this room that would spoil or pollute the receiving of your word tonight, Lord, we pray that you would cast all of that out. And you would make every heart in this room good soil, good soil, for the seed of the word to fall. We ask that it would fall tonight. We ask that you would push it deep into our hearts, that you would tend it and water it. And that fresh forms of obedience would spring up in us because of the work of your spirit in our midst tonight. Come, we pray. Help us. We ask that you would show us, I love how Augustine said so many years ago, for now, he said, see the scripture of God as the face of God melt in its presence. And so we pray that tonight we would see Ruth chapter three as the face of God and we would melt in the presence of God. Make that so. Make us more fully and completely your people tonight. All of these things we're asking in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people in the house and worshiping with us online. Said, Amen. Ruth chapter three. I'm gonna read the whole thing here and then make some comments on it. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. And tonight... He will be winnowing barley on the flesh, uh, threshing floor. So wash and put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes and then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. In other words, you want to come across his path when he's in a good mood, you know? Yeah, this is getting PG-13 in a hurry. When he lies down, know the place where he is lying <laughs> and then go and uncover his feet. Yeah, super duper PG-13. And lie down and he will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor. She did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Now, when Boaz had finished eating and drinking, and he was indeed in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the green pile and Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. And in the middle of the night, something startled the man, as it would. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet, exclamation point. (laughs) 
Which the, anyway, so who are you, he asked. I am your servant. Isn't it funny? We're all getting a little hot under the collar here. Hey, man. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are the guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which she showed earlier. You've not run after the young men, whether the rich or the poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you whatever you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. And although it's true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who's more closely related than I. So stay here for the night and in the morning. If he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. Just by way of explanation, so we're all on the same page. Uh, In Israel, there was a law in the law of Moses that basically stipulated if a family fell into trouble, it was the responsibility of the next uh, closest male in line basically to take on responsibility for that family and take care of them. So that's what the whole idea of the guardian redeemer is. And Boaz is one of the guardian redeemers of Elimelech's family. But as we find out, there's somebody that's a little bit closer than Boaz, which introduces a little bit of dramatic tension here into the, the story. So she lay at his feet until the morning. But she got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, "Uh, no one must know that a woman has come to the threshing floor. And he also said, bring me the shawl that you are wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her, and then he went back into town. And when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her everything that Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, thanks be to God. So we get the scenario, right? So this is the end of the day. Uh, Naomi has kind of figured out that this is a person who could take responsibility for the family. So Naomi goes to Ruth and says, okay, now uh, we want to try to like position ourselves as good as we possibly can so that this man takes notice of us and maybe that responsibility that he has for us, that that goes into motion. So Ruth, you're gonna take a nice shower and you're gonna do your hair up real good and put on some makeup and some perfume and your best clothes. Some scholars suggest that in the Hebrew, she's almost putting on a wedding dress here. I mean, she's doing everything that she can possibly do to communicate to Boaz, uh, I no longer wish to be like Ruth the Moabites, the outsider. I wanna be Ruth the insider. I would like to be your wife. I mean, this is like, in a weird way, she's sort of turning the tables on a proposal. She's proposing to Boaz here, and she's putting herself in a situation where she's very vulnerable, and she's very exposed, and she's really kind of laying herself literally and figuratively at Boaz's feet, saying, what are you going to do here? So these women are trying to capitalize as much as possible on this situation in order to benefit uh, uh, their good, their fortune here. Now, what is fascinating here is if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you just to flip back over one page to uh, Ruth chapter one, and I want you to look down at verse nine, because there's something fascinating going on, the text, uh, going on in the text here, and it has everything to do with that question of how God accomplishes his purposes in the world. Look down at verse nine. Now, this is when uh, Naomi is sending the girls back to Moab, and she says, quote, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. What's she doing there? She's praying for those girls, right? She's saying, I realize that like it's been a bad time for every one of us, but as you go back, my prayer for you 
is that Yahweh will be kind enough to you to bring a husband along in your life. Now fast forward here to Ruth chapter three, and what is Naomi doing? Naomi is actively seeking out a husband for Ruth. In a way, what she's doing is she's occupying her own prayer, okay, with her ability to bring to pass the very thing that she was praying for. Are you tracking with me tonight? The Old Testament scholar Robert Hubbard puts it this way. He says that in response to providentially given opportunity, Naomi began to answer her own prayer. I love that. Thus she models, he says, one way in which divine and human actions work together. What Naomi does constitutes at the same time God's actions. In response to providentially given opportunity, Naomi began to answer her own prayer. And what she does is she models the way in which divine and human acts actually come together and they become one act. Are you following me tonight? So there is this question, the big theological word that we wrestle with when we think about uh, the book of Ruth and other great books of the scripture is the question of providence, the question of providence. And when we say the word providence in the church, uh, one of the things that I think immediately comes into people's minds, like an association that they make with providence, is that what providence means is fate, okay? In other words, God is so completely in charge of everything that happens that it's all going to happen just the way that God previously decided, decided that it would happen so that nobody has any say in the matter, right? God wrote the story ahead of time and what human actors are doing is they're just kind of carrying out this script that God wrote ahead of time. But I wanna suggest to you tonight, and I think that Ruth is one of those places that pushes against that, that providence is not the same thing as fate, okay? We are not living in a world where God just kind of decided ahead of time what things were going to happen, and then we all just kind of do it and we have no say in it. That's not what providence is. One of the best definitions of providence that I've ever heard comes from the great theologian John Webster, who put it like this way. Webster wrote that providence is knowledge of God, okay? Providence is not a theory of history. Providence is not just kind of some abstract understanding about like, well, I think that it's all supposed to work out this way, and uh, whatever will be, will be, and the future's not ours to see, you know, the rest of the song, K, Sarah, Sarah. That's not, that's not what providence is. Webster suggests that providence is knowledge of God and it is known as God is known. We know providence as we know God. See, it's not about God just kind of concocting this sort of set thing that we step into, but providence is the way in which God works together with us in ordering all things together for good. But that's what the confession of scripture is. And when you look at, and by the way, like as Webster says, Providence is known as God is known. It's about the way in which we enter into an ongoing dynamic relationship with the living God, a relationship that is everywhere modeled in the pages of scripture, that God doesn't just do things by divine fiat that he decided he was gonna do ahead of time, but we enter into a living relationship with God and something that happens in that relationship has everything to do with the way that human history actually turns out. Think about the example of Moses, okay, in the Old Testament. Do you remember when Moses came down from the mountain he comes out and he sees the children of Israel and they're worshiping the golden calf and all that craziness, remember? And the Lord actually says, Moses, get out of the way, right? I'm frustrated with these people. They have transgressed against me. 
leave me and leave me in my wrath with them and I'm going to destroy them. Do you remember that? And do you remember what Moses says? Moses does, here's what Moses does not do. Moses does not go, oh great God, well I see that you have decided these things ahead of time and who can resist the things that you have already decided that you're going to do? I think I just need to leave you to, that Moses does not do that. Do you remember what Moses does? Moses goes, really? I mean, if that's what you want to do, Lord, but you know that if you do that, everybody's going to make fun of you. You can read it for yourself, Exodus 33 and 34. This is almost literally what Moses says. He goes, Lord, so this, uh, just if I can clarify for a second here. So the big plan is you deliver these people up out of Egypt and then the moment you get a little bit frustrated with them, you wipe them from the face of the earth. That's what the plan is. You know that everybody's gonna make fun of you. You know that everybody's gonna say that what the Lord did is he brought them out of Egypt only to destroy them. And I, that, I don't, maybe, you know, I'm just, I'm just one little guy. But I just feel like that would be bad for your reputation. So maybe you want to reconsider. You know what the scripture says? He reconsiders. Okay. So I don't really understand how it all works. But any theory that you have about how God works in the world and whatever providence means, you have to be able to take that into account. Because by the way, that's inspired text of scripture. Or another example for you. King Hezekiah in the book of Isaiah. Scripture says that (laughs) one day the Lord came to Isaiah and he said, hey, you need to go to Hezekiah and tell him to put his house in order because today he's going to die. He's not going to recover. And you know, Hezekiah does, so Isaiah does that. He goes, hey, um, so I know I normally give like decent, like good news to you, but I got kind of a downer (laughs) for you today. Hezekiah, put your house in order. You're going to die. And do you know what Hezekiah does? Well, Lord, if that's what you've decided, I guess nobody, he doesn't do that. Do you know what Hezekiah does? He goes, now, wait a minute. Haven't I served you with wholehearted devotion? And I've done what is good in your eyes all of my life, Lord. And really, you're going to take away my life now? Really, really, you're really actually going to do that? And the Lord comes back to, Hezekiah, comes back to Isaiah and says, hey, um, if I may, why don't you go back to Hezekiah and tell him, that I've heard his cries and I've seen his tears and I'm adding 15 years to his life. And Isaiah does, and God does. He gets 15 more years out of his life. Providence is not this ironclad thing. Are you following with me tonight? That God has decided ahead of time that he's going to do. Providence is the way in which God is working together with us to order all things for good. It's a dynamic relationship. Think about the example that Dr. Chris Green gave last week, the Canaanite woman in Matthew. You remember it. She comes chasing after Jesus and she says, Jesus, lay your hands on my daughter and heal her. She's possessed of a demon. And you remember what Jesus does. Well, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What does she say? Does she roll over and accept that? No. She looks the son of God in the eyes, the second person of the Trinity. And she says, excuse me, Lord, Actually, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And the scripture says that Jesus goes, I have not seen such great faith even in Israel. I've never seen, like, who talks to God like that? Right? God says, this is what I'm saying. And a human being goes, I don't think we're doing it that way. Refuses to accept the so-called decree of God, right? There is this ongoing thing. Of course, the daughter is healed because of that. Whatever we say 
about human history and how it unfolds. I think that we have to say that things happen or don't happen in the story of God with us because of the choices of human actors. We have a say, brothers and sisters, in how things turn out. Yeah, I need some amens from you. We have like actual things in the story of God will be or will not be a certain way because of choices that you and I make. It's not just a matter of God just kind of doing everything, you know? And some theologians have made a distinction that's important to make. We know about pantheism, right? That all things are God. But that's a belief that Christians reject. But there's a related belief that I think that Christians sometimes believe, but we also ought to reject, and it's called theopanism, which means that God is all things. And if we have an account of history where we don't actually get to do anything in it, then that means that we're not actually real things. We're just figments of God's imagination. God's imagination, it's theopanism. Our choices actually matter in how things turn out. I'll give you an example. My wife Mandy and I have been uh, married for 21 years now. We celebrated 21 years this past August. Yep, you can do that. That's great. We um, pray for her now and at the hour of her death. She's doing okay, though, with it. But we've known... We've known each other a lot longer than that. We were friends for a very long time before uh, we, we got married. And uh, we were friends for most of, through most of high school. And uh, during like the second half, I want to say, of our sophomore year, uh, Mandy and I, she's a year and some change older than me, so I married an older woman. And uh, <laughs> she, uh, so she's a year older than me. Somewhere during my sophomore year, her junior year, we started like some sparks started flying in our relationship. Like, and it was nice, you know, and I was liking it, and it was like a good zone, and we went to this, like, small uh, private Christian uh, high school together, and so we were always with each other in the same youth group and all the same friends, and it was just nice. It was, like, good, like, experiencing that chemistry, you know, and then we got to the summer between my sophomore year and my junior year, and my birthday rolled around, so my, my birthday's at the end of July, 16th birthday, and at the time, I really started getting into running, which been, that was, like, the moment when that passion developed for me. And uh, Mandy, in this un- incredibly sweet gesture, uh, Mandy went out and she bought running socks for Andrew Arndt, right? And she took them and she put them in this cute little gift bag, or this cute little gift bag with like the tissue and all of that and a nice card. And uh, on my 16th birthday, she gave me this birthday present, okay? And uh, you would expect that I would just melt at that and like they all live happily ever after. But I, of course, I did the perfectly rational thing in response to that. And uh, I pulled the plug on our relationship. I was like completely freaked out by it. Now, this is like me exposing my own insecurities to you. So in my 16 years of life up to that point, no female had ever shown even the remotest interest in me. So, and I didn't really, I was a little bit freaked out about what my parents might say. And so this is an oldest child's burden, you know, having grown up in kind of a fundamentalist home. And so what do we believe about girls and dating and all of that? And so anyway, I just freaked out. And I pulled the plug on the relationship and it quite nearly died. And then... But it didn't. And six months later, all of a sudden, there's like this resurgence of the relationship. And all through the second half of my junior year, we were just feeling that energy, right, towards each other again. And it was amazing and it was beautiful. And it got to this point where I was just like, I could not contain the pressure that was building up inside of me about this relationship. And so we get to the end of junior year, the end of her senior year, it was graduation day for her and for a bunch of our friends. And so that whole day was spent, the graduation and graduation parties, 
like everywhere. And then we went out and partied after the graduation parties. And in Marshfield, Wisconsin, that's where I'm from, you party after the graduation parties by going to Perkins Family Restaurant, (laughs) which is what we did. So we went to Perkins Family Restaurant and we didn't have a lot of money. So everybody was eating bread bowls and dipping them in ranch dressing. And that was like a thing back then. And, but meanwhile, all this is happening. And I'd like this volcano is building up inside of me. And part of the reason for that was that I knew that when Mandy was done with high school, her plan was to go on to a music conservatory and go live with her parents. And so our paths were like really close to diverging at that point. And so somebody had given me a ride to Perkins and I needed a ride home. And I kind of, hey guys, can anybody give me a ride home? And Mandy offers to give me a ride home. And so we pile into her little Toyota Corolla and we're driving down now Oak Street and getting ready to turn on Adler Road where I live. And now the volcano is like darn near bursting inside of me, you know? And so we pull up, uh, we turn on Adler Road and I, with great tact, (laughs) just blurt out. I mean, like maybe the most romantic lines in the history of, no, what did I say? I go, are we something? <laughs> Do you remember the old David Letterman sketch? Like, is this anything? You know, that's like what it was. And I just could not, God, I just say something. And Mandy looks at me and she goes, she goes, uh, what do you mean? And now at this point, I'm like almost furious. You know, it's like, you know darn well what I mean. <laughs> this thing that we've been doing, is this something? Is this anything? Is there something here? She pulls over the car, you know, and we get real quiet in there and we're kind of looking at each other and realizing that we're at a crossroads. And so, well, we went back to Perkins Family Restaurant. It was what we did after the friends had all cleared out. We sat there for a couple hours trying to figure it out and the rest is history. Yeah, nice story. Thank you for the clap. I appreciate that. (laughs) Don't do it like that, kids. You know, there's a better way to go about it. (laughs) But... God didn't do that, right? That wasn't me like following a word from the Lord. (laughs) It was me being a human being and feeling what I felt and seeing what I saw. And I certainly was praying about it and submitting all that was going on in that relationship to the Lord. I certainly was doing all of that, but God didn't do that. Andrew Arndt did that. And I have no doubt And I believe that this was, that God has added his yes to our relationship. And I believe in some mysterious way, this is definitely, this is the will of God. And when I look back on our lives, (laughs) our daughter is sitting on the front row. And I think about if that conversation had not happened in in that moment, I'm not really sure if we ever would have gotten together. And I don't know if there would have been a Bella. And I don't know if there would have been an Ethan and a Gabe and a Liam and all the memories that we made. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. But I do know because I think that God is this way that if we hadn't that night had that conversation, God would have gotten his will accomplished for us in some other way. Because he's just that kind of a God. He's not this God that's just kind of locked into this thing and then he crams us into this thing because he can't accomplish his purposes in the world any other way. Do you remember the story of the book of Esther? Esther, that Jewish gal who finds herself in a pagan country and all of a sudden she becomes the queen to this pagan king and there's a plot against the Jews to annihilate the Jews and her uncle Mordecai comes to her and says to her, Esther, the Lord has raised you up for this very purpose so that you would speak up on behalf of your people. But then he says this, he says, if you don't do what I think the Lord is asking you to do right now, 
help from the Jew, for the Jews will arise, but it will come from another place. It's something like that, guys, that we're actors in this and what we do or don't do, it matters for how the story is going to unfold. Now, God is going to work all things together for good. The question is, what are we going to do about it, right? It, it, all of this is really the question of like, what is the will of God for our lives? And I don't know that it's always perfectly clear to us what the will of God for our lives is. We never get in the book of Ruth any indication that Naomi is following some word from the Lord. Nobody's following a word from the Lord. There are no signs from heaven. There are no angels appearing, telling, telling people that you need to do this or not do this. There's not that. You just have human beings following their instincts, right? As best as they can discern, this seems like the right thing to do. Guys, this is kind of what it's like most of the time in faith. When I think about my own life, I think about the times that I've had, and I've had a handful of really obvious times where it was like God was speaking, right? And I definitely need to do this thing over here. Most of the rest of the time has been me trying to use my good judgment. And most of the rest of the time for you, it's you trying to use your good judgment. And I remember this gal came to me years ago when I was pastoring in Denver. She comes to me and she goes, she goes, pastor, she goes, I'm really in a dilemma here. I go, okay, tell me the dilemma. She goes, I just finished up law school and I've got two like amazing opportunities in front of me. I go, okay. And she describes one. She goes, one is kind of back in my own hometown. She was from Indianapolis or something like that. One is back in my hometown. And this is what's kind of going on in that opportunity. And it's got these kind of pros to it and these kind of cons to it. I go, well, what's the other opportunity? She goes, well, the other opportunity is here in Denver. And it's got these pros and these cons. And I like this about this, but I don't like that about it. And I just really don't know what God is telling me to do. Right? How many of you, by a show of hands, you've ever been in that moment of your life? Right? Okay, that's 100% as far as I can tell, the rest of your liars. <laughs> or we're all doing it wrong. You should be coming and preaching this tonight. What is God telling me to do? Do you know what I told her to do? I said to her, I go, I don't have a freaking clue what God is telling you to do. She goes, some help you are. What kind of a pastor are you? The lamest pastor I've ever been around, you know? Do you know what I said to her? I go, well, what do you want to do? <laughs> truly, like, what do you want to do? She goes, well, actually, my heart really is to, like, do this thing over there, to take this opportunity over there. I go, okay, do that thing. And as far as I know, she did it. I wanted to say something to you tonight. Um, here's the big point that I'm trying to make with all of this. Some of you, and I feel like this is a word of the Lord for you tonight. Some of you are standing around with your hands in your pockets, waiting for some sign from heaven to begin living your life. Knock it off. <laughs> the great poet Mary Oliver says, what do you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Do you realize the opportunities that God has placed in front of you and the gifts that you have? Do you realize what agency that you still have to make things happen in your life? But you're so consumed. Let me just liberate you for a second. You're so consumed with getting it wrong that you never take the risk to get it right. You're afraid that if you make a wrong move that God's gonna be mad at you. I have news for you. 
let's marshal one of the great doctrines of the church to help you, okay? Do you know the doctrine of justification by faith? Do you know what that means? That we are justified by faith, which means we're not justified by, yeah, or anything else. You are not justified. You're not put in the right with God by virtue of your ability to make perfectly clairvoyant choices about your future. You're not put in the right with God because you can intuit the divine will just so and act on it. You're you're not put in the right with God because you've made perfectly sensible decisions all of your life. That's not how you're put in the right with God. How are we put in the right with God? By faith and not by works. So what do we do? We make decisions. (laughs) And we lift those decisions up into the hands of God. And we say, God, I'm doing the best that I know how to do. I've read the scriptures and I've talked with my friends and I've prayed this through and I feel like this is what's in front of me to do. And unless you send an angel with a flaming sword at my throat telling me not to do this, this is the decision (laughs) that I'm going to make. And I think, guys, that God loves that. I think that he loves that. You know what the psalmist said? The psalmist says that the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. You know what I think that God wants from his people? I think that he wants them so to love the lives that they've been given that they see their lives as this playground. And they just live inside of it. And they do the best that they can and they don't get too freaked out by, by, by their not hearing the voice of God for every particular decision. And I just wanna say also to you tonight that if that's you, that if you're kind of like in a place where you're like, I never really have any idea what God is saying to me, welcome to the party. (laughs) One of the great figures of the 20th century, a Trappist monk by the name of Thomas Merton, in one of his great prayers, he put it like this. He said, and maybe this will be like another word from the Lord for you tonight. He said, my Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I, am th- I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that, that, I, have, that, I, hope, I, hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road though I may know nothing about it. Therefore will I trust you always, though I seem to be lost and in the shadow of death, and I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Guys, God is with us. God is for us. God is blessing us. Which means that we have the freedom to live our lives. And now I want to say one more thing to you and then we're going to start making our way to the table. The thing to notice in Ruth chapter 3 that I think is so fascinating is not just that human actors have choices to make and those choices are real choices. But that human actors have choices to make and they use those choices in a very specific way. Okay, Naomi has agency. Naomi has freedom. But who does Naomi use her choices for? 
Who's she using for? Ruth. Naomi leverages her agency for the good of Ruth. And Ruth, when Ruth gets in her little situation with Boaz, one of the things that you'll notice when you read through Ruth chapter three is that Ruth actually leverages her situation there for Naomi's good. So when she's discovered at the feet of Boaz, she doesn't say, hey, they're good looking. Want to marry me? Do you know what she says? She says, you're our kinsman redeemer. So Naomi or Ruth actually uses her agency to invoke this thing that won't just save her, but will save the whole clan, the whole family. She's thinking about other people. And even Boaz in the story, even though Boaz has every opportunity to take advantage of Ruth in that moment, number one, he shows incredible restraint by not doing it, right? He will not use his agency to take advantage of Ruth. But secondly, he realizes that there's a kinsman redeemer out there that's actually more closely related than he. And so he refuses to game the system to get what he wants. Boaz uses his agency for the good of other people. Guys, everybody in this story uses their choices to try to make somebody else's life better. Are you with me tonight? And the kingdom of God breaks in because of it we get the eventual grandfather of David because of this, who is the eventual grandfather of the Messiah. The kingdom of God comes into the world most consistently when human beings use their free will in this way. I'll say it this way tonight, that we partner most deeply with the purposes of God when we act for the good of others. And of course, the scripture everywhere bears witness to this. Paul writes it so beautifully in Philippians chapter two. He says, do nothing. Everybody say nothing. Do nothing. Can I do some things? No, not any things. Do no things. Out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who Being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, all in different ways, are figures of Jesus the Messiah, who when he comes into the world, He uses all of his agency and all of his power to make our lives better. He gives himself for us and we are most like Jesus Christ when we live our lives in that way. Are you tracking with me tonight? One final story and we'll go to communion. One of the most profound examples of this in my own life happened a few years back. We've been on staff here for four and a half years. I left a church plant in Denver to come here and we were on staff for a couple years with the Friday night community and spent most of 2017 healing up and a good deal of 2018 kind of healing up as well. And then in about mid to late 2018, Pastor Brady started talking with me about the possibility of leading our East congregation. And at the time, I was still very much grieving and very messy in the head, and that all just felt like, I don't know how I can do that, and I'm very scared of that, and I'm still a little traumatized by all the things, all that stuff, you know? And so I kept saying, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. And he kept saying, I think you're the guy, I think you're the guy. And I was like, I really don't understand why you're so confident in this because I don't feel very confident. And so I just don't think this is a good idea. And he was like, I do think it's a good idea. And so finally I was like, all right, fine. (laughs) We'll pray about it, you know. 
And so in December 2018, we started praying about it. And Mandy and I just, as we discerned it with friends and family, and Lord, what are you saying? And we came to the place where we just really felt like we're gonna give our yes to this. This is what the Lord is calling us to do. And so I remember emailing Brady that afternoon, and I was like, hey, we feel like the Lord is telling us to do it, and we're gonna do it, we can give our yes to it. And he was ecstatic over the moon about it, and so the gears for planting the East congregation start going into motion. And of course, I did. At that point, I did the most rational thing that you can do. I balked. And I remember in the next couple months, I just was still so messy in the head about it. I just couldn't. I wasn't settled in my spirit. I don't know what to do. And is this what I want to do? And I remember I, I lead our podcast here at the church. And Brady and I were recording a podcast one day. And we finished recording the podcast. I shut the, the microphones off. And I said, listen, Pastor Brady, I don't know where I'm at in this. I don't know if the East congregation is something I can do. I don't know if that's where I want to be. And, I, I, and this felt like, honestly, one of the riskiest conversations in my life. I was like, am I about to lose my job here? You know, but I can't not be honest. Again, it was like that volcano. Ugh, I just got to say it. And so I said it. It's honest. I, I don't know if I can give my yes to this. And I will never forget, and I'm in like very, very scared at this point. And I'll never forget Brady looking across the table at me with a great deal of tenderness in his eyes. And he said, you know, Andrew, listen, if you want to do the East Congregation, I will be over the moon about that. And I think that you've got the gifts to do it. I think you've got the talent to do it. And I think it makes sense. But if you decide you don't want to do that, I'm not going to be disappointed. Like if you tell me that you want to stay with the Friday night community, I'm not going to be disappointed with you. If you tell me you want some other role here at New Life, I'm not going to be disappointed with you. If you tell me that you wanna go take over another church halfway across the country, I will not be disappointed with you. If you tell me that you wanna go plant a church back up in Denver or wherever, I'm not gonna be disappointed in you. You just need to do what's best for you and best for your family. All of the pressure goes out at that point. And I promise you, if he had said to me, if there had been some ultimatum, you better make a decision today, bud. I would have ran completely away and all of the good things that we're experiencing, the work of God on the east side of the city, none of that would have happened. It happened because he wasn't looking out for his own interest. He was looking out for the interest of somebody else. Andrew, what's best for you? What's best for your family? Why don't you do that? And the kingdom came into the world through it. And I just wanna like invite you to think about what would happen in our world if the people of God lived in that? You know, so much of our posture in the world now, so much of our posture and culture is not what's best for other people. It's what's best for us. The way that we vote, the way that we, you know, elect public officials, the way that we think about social issues, the way that we think about our neighbors, most of the time we're just thinking about ourselves. But what if that changed? What if among the people of God, there was actually a group of people who came into the world saying, this isn't about me, it's about you. What would be good for you? What's best for you? What's best for our neighbors? What's best for our family members? What's best for our friends? And we oriented ourselves that way. I think that maybe, just maybe, we'd see a little bit more of God in our world. And so when we come to the table of the Lord, and now I want you to take your elements in your hands and stand with me tonight. See guys, when we come to the table of the Lord, what we're doing is we're examining our own lives for the places in which we have not lived into this and we have taken more responsibility for ourselves than we have taken responsibility for other people. 
And so we're gonna pray this prayer in just a second here. And this is a prayer that invites the spirit to search our hearts. And we're gonna ask the Lord to search our hearts. And then we're gonna come to the table of the Lord and we're going to do it not just receiving the forgiveness of sins, though that, certainly that, but we're gonna receive from the Lord Jesus again, his very own life in us that makes us as he was and is in the world, a man for others. And so Lord Jesus, now we say, come, come by your spirit, search us, know us, open our hearts. The psalmist said, see if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. And so what we're praying tonight is that you would root out of us all selfish ambition and that you would root out of us any vain conceit and all of those things in us that make our lives about us. We pray that you would break the back of those things in, that, in this place tonight and that you'd liberate us tonight to be a people who live our lives for the sake of others, the glory of God and the good of the world. Would you do that, we pray. And we make this our prayer before you tonight, Lord Jesus. We say, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And so the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, after he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it. Let's break it together. And he said, take this all of you and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this whenever you eat it in remembrance of me. Just hold on to the bread. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, drink from this, all of you, this covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So we say, Lord Jesus, tonight, come. We offer bread and cup up to you. And we ask by the miracle of your spirit that this would become for us more than bread and cup. We ask that it would become for us the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that changes us and makes us new. We ask that the mystery and the magnitude of the presence of Jesus would come to us and transform us tonight. And so come, we say come. And as you're holding your elements in your hand, would you now see that the Lord Jesus is right in front of you? And would you begin to lift up adoration and thanksgiving in your heart as you prepare to receive the bread and the cup? We say, thank you, Jesus. Make all things new, even in us. And now, brothers and sisters, let's take the bread and the cup together. And let's respond in worship.
Church family, let's sing the song that we typically sing at the end, our own doxology. I was glad that they invited me to come to the house of the Lord. So our prayer team, you can come on up. If you need prayer this evening, we have people up here who would love to agree with you in prayer tonight. Remember to come visit us at Guest Central in the back if you're new. And my friends, I pray that the Lord bless you. He is blessing you. May you awaken to it. The Lord is blessing you. He is preserving you. He is keeping you. He is shining his face upon you. May you recognize his bright, smiling countenance upon you. And may your life extend that smile into those around you. May you be a person for others as our God is for us. And may he grant you peace in all of it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Much love.